There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch, hosted by the CM Group. Free Lunch will bring listeners the team's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. Greg, I didn't use our last names that time, just a first name only basis. We've been doing this long enough. We should be first name only. Episode 191. It's a pretty good number. We are going to talk today about this election year, a topic that we first talked about way back on episode 17, I believe. So there's been quite a few episodes in between. But last week, we talked about a potpourri of topics, including recency bias, value of advice, market timing, and this idea of a stock picker's market, which is a bunch of bunk, by the way. If you don't want to go back and listen to that episode, let's just sum it up with bunk. Yeah. Is that uh, the same as hogwash or fiddle-faddle? Never heard of fiddle-faddle before. When you say fiddle-faddle, it reminds me of peanut brittle for some yeah. reason. I was thinking of that might be what I'm thinking of. <laughs> that has nothing to do with today's topic, but... We have had a lot of people recently talking about this upcoming U.S. election because it is a big thing and it's in the news everywhere because right now you've got the Republicans going through their nomination process, which is it just me or are things just crazy down there, Greg? I think Americans be crazy. Can you say that? I'm not sure. That's probably too general. Not all Americans are. But the ones that make the news seem to be. That's right. So this year may be deja vu all over again in terms of the U.S. election matchup because Donald Trump does appear to be the front runner for the nomination. And it sounds like Joe Biden is going to be the Democratic nominee, although there are some people that are pushing for some other people, which is interesting to me because Joe Biden is actually older than my dad and nothing against my dad at all. I think he's a great guy, really like him, but I don't think he'd be a good president. So there'll be a lot of people over the next 10 months who are going to be talking more and more about this election and what it's going to mean to markets and the economy. We'll hear things like, will there be a recession this year? Will inflation come back to the central bank's targets? Will interest rates decline? Will the high-performing stocks last year continue their run or will they come back down to earth? And one that you put in here, one of my favorite ones you put in here, will the flames make it to the playoffs? Highly unlikely at this point. Exactly. It's not looking good. But why don't we kick it off with markets? How do markets react during these times? As you mentioned, we've got a U.S. election less than 10 months away. And a lot of people are questioning what to do with their portfolios and should we be doing anything? And people have different fears. The fears might be, oh, gee, if Donald Trump gets reelected, he's promised to do a lot of things that don't necessarily sound like they'd be positive and not even positive for the economy, positive for sentiment, let's say maybe not positive for geopolitical issues that are going on, etc. So lots of people are looking forward and saying, okay, what can we expect in this presidential year? And basically, we have to look back to look forward, keeping in mind, of course, that what's happened in the past is not necessarily an indication of what's going to happen in the future. I think the saying is, it doesn't repeat, but it certainly rhymes. So just to review, and we did this back on episode 17 as well, what happened historically during presidential terms. And a lot of this data comes from data, but it's gathered up. The Stock Traders Almanac seems to accumulate this data and basically look for patterns. And so what happened during each presidential term? Where according to 
article by Forbes and also the facts. Bill Clinton had the best stock market return of presidents going back many years. I think ever, actually. And it was big. He had big returns in both of his terms. George W. Bush the worst. So why would that be? It could be a function of timing. Clinton basically was during the dot-com bubble. So he basically got to ride the wave of the dot-com stocks up through 2000. Bush had the burst of the dot-com bubble, followed by 9-11, and he ended his term during the global credit crisis. George W. didn't get the best hand when it came to being the president. That's just unlucky timing. It is. And when you look at the best returns during four-year presidential cycles since the late 50s, so this goes back to Eisenhower. Before you do that, what did the stock market do during Clinton's two terms? I believe it was up 210%. And during Bush's two terms? Down 40%. So a 250% swing. That's right. And just a function of timing, really. So looking at four-year presidential cycles since the late 50s, of the six best periods, and these are periods, four-year periods when the market was up over 60%, three of those occurred under Democratic presidents and three under Republican presidents. Not a lot to be learned there. So I think people try to project markets do better under Republicans because they like to cut taxes and when they're good for the economy by doing that. Not true, necessarily. The same way they think, oh, and Democrats, they like to spend more money on entitlement programs, raise taxes, and so they should have worse stock market performance. No relevance whatsoever, it seems. But there is this presidential election cycle theory, and that was developed by the Stock Traders Almanac founder, Yale Hirsch. So that theory contends that U.S. stock markets are weakest in the year following the election of a new president. And according to this theory, after the first year, the market improves until the cycle begins again with the next presidential election. So the theory suggests the market performed best in the second half of a presidential term when the sitting president tries to boost the economy to get reelected. And so it's based on the view that the shift in presidential priorities is a primary influence on the stock market. Right. And so in the first couple of years of a presidency, the presidents might be trying to implement changes, maybe positive, maybe negative, but they're doing a lot to achieve whatever it is they wanted to achieve. And then the second half of their term, they're trying to fix it so that the economy is good, consumers are spending and happily into the next presidential election. So there is some data from the past several decades that seems to support the idea of stocks improving or even surging in some cases during the second half of an election cycle. But it is a limited sample size because there's just not that many presidential cycles over the last 50 years or so. So let's look at how markets did during Biden's first three years here. And it looks like the theory kind of held, even though the reasons for the market's performance would seem to be driven by factors way outside of typical presidential politics. So at the end of 2023, the S&P 500 is up 33% overall. Not too bad. When you look at what happened, Biden's first year was 2021. That was the first year after the pandemic, and markets did quite nicely. 2022 was a dismal year, not necessarily because of Biden's policies, but clearly interest rates going from 1.5% to up to 5% had a big impact on that. You can always look back and say there's lots of reasons why this happened. And in fact, back in 2020, Fidelity put out an article basically saying that regardless, it always comes back down to fundamentals. That is true. It has to. If you think about cycles, think about the business cycle for a minute. The business cycle is not defined by a time frame, like four years, where the presidential cycle is. The longest the president can be in power 
consecutively is eight years. But the business cycle might be shorter or longer than that. It could just be that if you wait long enough, the long-term fundamentals of earnings and interest rates, labor growth, productivity, and just the mean reversion nature of just a monetary policy takes over in driving long-term returns. It's like what we tell people about market timing. You can't necessarily have time markets, but if you stay invested, you can certainly benefit during periods of time. So we saw that in 2023, where really the first 10 months of 2023, I think the technical term, Greg, is they sucked. They were terrible. But then the last two months, we saw tons of return. So I think what's ultimately going on here is the economy and therefore the market is simply bigger than the direction the political winds are blowing. Plus, you have this idea that in the U.S., they have midterm elections. I still don't understand all the nuances of the U.S. political system, by the way. I do my best. I should know a bit more because my father is American. Not my father, pardon me, my father-in-law. My father is the president of the United States, I said earlier. (laughs) (laughs) You said he'd be a lousy president, though. No, I never said that. You said that. No, he can't run because he's Canadian anyways. But those midterm elections tend to equalize some lopsided returns over the first two years. And it is a good reminder that, well, it's sometimes suggested that a particular president or party is really good or really bad for the stock market or the economy. It's really the long-term fundamentals that matter, right? That policy initiatives like taxes and spending can affect markets, but so do demographics and an effective monetary policy. And this is what's come into play the last few years, the monetary policy with all the interest rate hikes to offset the high inflation that we experienced. How could you say that that was because somebody was a president and somebody wasn't? It's interesting because when you look at what happened in the bond market, for example, in 2022, where I think we suffered the worst bond market returns in history, that was the culmination of a 40-year cycle, what they call a secular decline in interest rates that started back in 1982. You mean a secular bear market? It had been a secular secular bull bull market. market. Yes, that's right. Because interest rates, of course, started, I think they were up around 15% or something back in 1982, and they found their way down to 1.5% post the pandemic. So that cycle, that secular bull market in bonds, basically carried us through, I don't know, 10 presidencies, 10 presidential cycles. And so the negative impact that happened back in 2022, you can't particularly link to Joe Biden specifically. You can if you're a Trump supporter. I guess so, yeah. But you could certainly see rationally that this is just the end of a very long cycle. And so it's not that presidential policies might not have some impact, but they certainly could not account for 11% drop in the bond market in 2022. We've seen in the past some of these policies that play out in the short term. They definitely impact markets in the short term. Remember in the fourth quarter of 2018, actually the U.S. stock market had quite a negative quarter. And that was because at the time, then President Trump implemented a bunch of trade tariffs with China and the market didn't like that. But really it just lasted a month or two. 2018 was a funny year. Started off really strong. It started off strong, but then interest rates started going up. The central bank was playing around with raising interest rates. That carried through the summer, and that really resulted in a lot of panic. And in fact, the central bank panicked, and they reversed course on their interest rate hikes in 2018. But by the end of 2018, in fact, I remember the day. It was Boxing Day 2018 when the market hit its low point for the year. And then it started a recovery, and of course, 2019 was a fantastic year. So anybody that's looking at these different types of seasonal or cyclical rallies, the Christmas effect, 
wouldn't have come true in the, 2018. The Santa Claus rally did not work. Well, listen, from a longer term market perspective, this upcoming presidential election, it's important, of course, as the approaching demographic wave of an aging population is going to increase the demand for social benefits, healthcare and social security benefits. We always talk about how the U.S. doesn't have a healthcare system, but they actually do. It's yeah. just different. You have to be over 65, I believe, to qualify for Medicare. And then Medicaid, which I believe covers people of limited means, it's the rest of the people that are affected. Obviously, these social programs come at a cost, which are likely to result in more debt, those debt levels rising in the U.S., and the need for trying to keep interest rates low to offset right. the cost of that debt. Well, and the interesting thing, when you think about low interest rates, I mean, we had low interest rates after the pandemic when they essentially went to zero and to a point where the 10-year bond, I think, was down around 1.5% or something. So that's as close to zero as you can get. But even now, after all of the interest rate hikes that have happened, pushing up the short-term yields, the overnight yields to 5% or whatever, the longer-term bonds, I think the 30-year bonds right now are still somewhere around 4 or something. They're not particularly high for long-term bonds. And I think that is a factor. Interest rates, they need to normalize, which a lot of people believe that they have normalized at this point, but I think they're going to be lower than a lot of us maybe were used to from the 90s. They're going to be higher. They're going to be higher than they have been recently. You know, lower than going back to the 90s or something. You could still get a 10-year bond at 6% those days. I think that's something that may change. I'm going to make a... I don't know if we call it my thesis statement here about the housing market. If you had a secular bull market in interest rate reduction over the last 40 years, that would have led to a, I would call it a secular bull market in real estate because borrowing costs were going down dramatically for four decades. And now you've gotten to a point where those mortgage rates are much higher now than they were a few years ago, which should slow down the housing market. That's right. And I think they've seen that. Canada's a little bit fuzzier, but in the U.S., you get a bit more of a sense because, of course, they have 30-year mortgages there. You can lock in your rate for 30 years. And they're very sensitive to interest rates. So when interest rates, I think the 10-year bond in the U.S. peaked at over 5% back in October and mortgage demand plummeted. And then within the next month and a half, that 5% 10-year bond was back down to 4%. And I just read this morning, They saw a 10% jump in mortgage demand, I think, in December. So highly sensitive to the level of interest rates. And again, because of those 30-year mortgages. Well, I mean, it reminds me of in 2007 when we saw that the global financial crisis was going to happen and we shorted all of those mortgage securities. Oh, wait, that wasn't us. Oh, yeah, that was somebody else. Okay, well, let's talk about 2024. What do you see happening? Well, yeah, I mean, listen, it's a presidential election year. Lots of concerns out there concerns about what if Trump gets reelected? And this is not me talking. This is just stating concerns that I've been reading about or hearing about. If Trump gets elected, there's concerns that, oh, democracy is on the line in the U.S., that rather than focusing on major problems like wars in the Ukraine or wars in Israel or potential wars with Iran and their proxies in the Middle East, that the focus will be on retribution for things that have happened to Donald Trump. Whether that happens or not, nobody knows. But I think it's clear that possibly his commitment to things like supporting Ukraine might not be as strong as the current president. So maybe that'll happen, maybe it won't. There's still a Senate and a Congress that weigh in on some of these things. You bring up an interesting point, and there is a difference between having a divided or a unified government. 
And there are three houses in the U.S. We're just simply focused right now on the White House, where the president resides. But markets react differently based on whether the current government is divided. Maybe one has the White House and the other one has the other two houses or et cetera, some other version of that, or unified. A few years back, before the midterm elections, the Democrats actually had all three houses. And then there was some worry about maybe they have too much power when they have all three houses. So that's an interesting one to me about U.S. politics as well. It also shows how things that you fear or you predict may not come through either. In Trump's first year, they also, the Republicans controlled all three houses. And yet one of his big plans was to get rid of Obamacare and replace it with something. Never happened. Didn't he just change the name? I don't think he changed the name even. But he had problems because he could not get that pushed through. Because remember NAFTA, it went from being NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, to being USMHC. Lots to worry about based on who wins the presidential election. Wait a minute. I would say lots to not worry about. That's right. Lots to think about. Lots of factors. It all comes down to what can we do? What does an investor do during times like this? Because we can expect markets to fluctuate. The financial media, and we've seen this before, can sometimes amplify the perceived significance of an event and its expected impact on the financial markets. And so you can't let the crisis of the day affect a long-term strategy and sentiment. So here's a few points to just try to keep the headlines in context. Number one, the world has observed many previous crises, but capital markets have rewarded disciplined investors. There's lots of major events around the world that can have an influence on stock prices in the short term, but it's difficult to predict when these events are going to occur, how they'll impact the markets, and what we've seen from virtually all previous crises is the stock markets usually rebound. I actually love those graphs that are put out by index charts that show the headlines of the time in different years and how at the time it felt permanent, like 9-11 was a big deal. The global financial crisis was a big deal. But then when you look back now at the return since then, you would have felt like I would have been crazy not to be invested for the last 20 years. And you just have to look at what happened during the pandemic. During the first couple of months of the pandemic, the markets tanked. The U.S. stock market was down 30% in four weeks from mid-February to mid-March of 2020. And from there on in, it's pretty much straight up until 2022. So you can't ever be sure how a single event is going to impact stock prices. And there's lots of factors influencing them and major events and stock market movements might be related, but it's challenging to determine how correlated they are. And after good or bad news, stock prices might not move in the direction that you expect. So it's not enough to just identify a major event in advance, but you also have to predict how the markets are going to react to that major event. And point three is something that we talk about all the time, and that is that Reacting to a crisis by leaving the market is just another form of market timing. When you move in or out of the market in response to an event, you're making a prediction that the market will have a positive or negative return. And we believe, as we've talked about with efficient market theory, that markets incorporate all available information. And once all of the information is known by investors, then prices have already adjusted. Let me talk about that for a second, because I did have a meeting today with somebody. A year ago, they had asked me, should I buy a GIC? Because there was a lot of stuff going on in the world, Ukraine and Russia, et cetera. And at the time, I said, no, I don't think you should. You got to just stay invested. So fast forward a year later, they returned 10.5% in their portfolio. It's a pretty good year. So what did the person say to me today? Should I buy a GIC? Well, if you buy a GIC, you're going to lock in a rate of 4 to 5% for the next year. But by not locking it in last year, you did double that. And I'm not saying that's going to happen every year. 
timing markets, as we've talked about in many episodes, it's not even hard, Greg. It just doesn't work. And you mentioned what happened this past year. At the end of October, you'd have thought, what a horrible year. I just should get out now before things get any worse. And in two months, I think the market rebounded 16% or something. And listen, the last point, which I think is really critical to understanding why you invest, dealing with the uncertainty associated with major events is one reason why investors earn a return over time. We've talked about this risk and expected return. If there was no uncertainty regarding future events and the impact on stock prices, why would investors deserve to earn a return greater than the risk-free rate? Major events and their unknown impact on stock prices create that uncertainty, and the uncertainty is one of the major reasons why investors earn a return. Well, that's CAPM at its best, right? So the capital asset pricing model, if all of the events were known, then your expected rate of return would simply, as you say, be your risk-free rate. Why would you do anything but buy T-bills? That's right. Investors, if they're disciplined and have realistic expectations, then they're going to be better prepared during a crisis. And they'll be able to take a long-term view of the market, understand why some investments have higher expected returns than others, and accept that uncertainty is one of the major reasons why investment pays off. Yeah, we often talk about the news as being entertainment advice. It's really not actionable advice. I heard somebody refer to Bloomberg the other day as Doomberg or BNN as the bad news network. These are not my sayings. These are other people's sayings. But responding to the latest news and exiting the markets, that's not going to remove anxiety. It's going to replace it with other anxiety. And you might go from a fear of being in to a fear of missing out very quickly. So anybody that exited the market in October looked at November and December's market returns and probably didn't feel that great about their decision. And so the only way to combat that is through things like proper diversification, prudent investment management, maybe having a goals-driven asset allocation or goals-based reporting system. Those can help to alleviate some of that anxiety of the latest headlines. You mentioned the media, and it's just one of my pet peeves. Oh, is this Kreminsky's pet peeve list? Let's start that up again. One of my pet peeves is if you listen to these guys, they say, well, yeah, given all the uncertainty of the market, we're beginning to favor international stocks this year over U.S. stocks, for example. They might say, we favor stocks over bonds, given the likelihood that interest rates might actually go back up a bit, et cetera. But when you look at what they're actually doing then, if you dig into the company's strategic positioning, they might have a strategic portfolio of 60% stocks and 40% bonds. And if they're favoring stocks over bonds, they might move to 62% stocks and 38% bonds. And so when they make these statements, it creates the illusion that, oh yeah, these guys, they're getting out of bonds and getting into stocks, for example. And it's just not ever the case. They're making modest adjustments to a portfolio small tactical adjustments that in the end might not actually make a big difference, uh, 60-40 to 62-38. And so you do have to be careful and really understand what people are saying and what it actually means. Well, because if they're not making modest adjustments and they're following that advice of getting out of stocks and into bonds, they wouldn't go from 60% to 58%. They'd go from 60% to zero and they'd put it all into bonds. So why would they only go from 60% to 58%? It's because they also know, well, what if I'm wrong? Which is the whole concept behind diversification. I always like that. Somebody had once said, you know your portfolio is diversified when there's always something in it to complain about. I think that's the way to look at it. Well, then my home must be diversified because there's always something to complain about at home. There you go. All right. Anything else? Nope. I'm sure we'll revisit this presidential year election cycle thing as we get closer to the actual date of the election. Something to keep in mind until then. 
Okay, 10 more months of this then. You got it. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insights on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC with Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and its subsidiaries, including CIBC Woodgundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Woodgundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kaminsky are investment advisors with CIBC Woodgundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates, or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking, or other services for or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2024.